it's incredible. You know, I'm an Olympian with an Ivy League degree and an executive MBA. And you would never think that those three things would work together. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Lauren Gibbs. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. So, you know, always got to ask, got to start it off. Like, did you come right out of the womb, jump in a bobsled and just shooting down the stairs? Like immediately that was your life calling. You knew from two years old, right? That that's what you were going to be doing? Absolutely. Yep. (laughs) I mean, I did climb out of my crib at eight months. Okay. That's impressive. The story is my mom only pushed once or twice. So maybe I was always in need of speed. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're like leaning into it before it. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious. So where where are you from? Where were you? Where did you grow up? Born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I've been an athlete as long as I can remember. And then went off to the East Coast for college because I was like, I need to know what the cold feels like. And so (laughs) what did you, what drew you to athletic? Were your parents athletes? Like where did that start? So I was always, it's funny because I can distinctly remember asking to play AYSO soccer, but I don't really know why. I just, I was always a kid that like always moved around. I always had a lot of energy. I wasn't allowed to have caffeine as a kid. And I begged my parents. Probably good. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Even now I need to limit the caffeine, but I bet I remember begging my parents to let me play AYSO soccer. And that started eight before that I did like ballet tap I, w- I did one of those like kinder gymnastics things and like now I'm 5'10 and 180 pounds so clearly gymnastics was not in my future I also took figure skating lessons as a kid oh. because my neighbor growing up was a competitive figure skater it was my so, wife yeah 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 no she did it up until through high school and then right before like starting to try to do Olympic trial stuff she's like no I'm just gonna go to college <laughs> it's a lot especially yeah. figure skating like it's yeah. a lot yeah no, agreed. And so was soccer your sport growing up or? Yeah, I played soccer from like eight years old until 16. And the dream was to like go to Stanford, play soccer, become an attorney. I did none of those so things. When did the attorney dream come in? I'm always curious about this. Like at what wage do you decide <laughs> I want to be a lawyer? Like pretty young. And yeah. I think it was because I love to argue. Yeah. <laughs> I had the same thing. I grew up arguing with my parents and my mom used to always tell me that I should be an attorney, but it never clicked. That, like it. I'm actually going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, no, then I found out like how much schooling and how much reading you had to do. And I was like, I don't think this is for me. (laughs) And so up until 16, you're doing soccer. Did you continue that through the rest of high school or something changed? No, I realized at 16, I wasn't great at soccer. (laughs) (laughs) I was just fast. I was fast and I was kind of a lazy athlete. So I just never really developed the ball control skills that you needed to be amazing at soccer. And I just was getting injured all the time, like, you know, spraining ankles and like miss up my hip. And like, as you said, 5'10", 180, like you've got some muscle on you, like that was some weight on your ankles. Yeah. Well, I wasn't that big. So like okay. in high school, I was like 145 pounds. Okay. So not, yeah. But still, like yeah. I know some grown women who are yeah. lighter than 145 pounds. So yeah. I realized after my sophomore year of soccer that it just wasn't for me. And the volleyball coach had been trying to get me to play volleyball for a long time because I can jump pretty high. And so that was like the switch to volleyball. And so I ended up playing volleyball in college instead. And how long did you play in high school? Just sophomore, what, oh. the junior and senior year. 
Okay, cool. But did you excel at it right away? Was it like you were good or is it just? It was like I had some raw talent. You know, if I made contact with the ball, it was just going straight down. And I had some decent hops and some hang time. Really lacked body control and ball control. So I never really got to play back row, but, you know, got to hit. And so I got recruited by a number of different schools and then actually got recruited by Brown to do track because I was a long jump and triple jumper and was a CIF. (laughs) champion in long jump and triple jump and then i found out that track and field was two seasons <laughs> i was like <laughs> look i'm looking for some like work-life balance or sports school balance and so yeah. i asked them i was like do you guys have a volleyball team so they introduced me to the volleyball coach she came to watch me play and went for a visit and she was like if you want to go to brown you're in <laughs> awesome that's great yeah. And how were your parents? I'm always curious where the support comes from for the athletics. Were they like just super supportive all in, like getting you to all these competitions or how was that growing up? Yeah, it was funny because my dad used to just lose it on the sidelines. Like it was that (laughs) like dad that was like yelling. I remember telling the ref once, I was like, can you please tell that man to be quiet? He got a speeding (laughs) ticket once leaving a game because he wasn't happy with how I was playing. But (laughs) the cool thing about my dad too is he was the one that always drove me to soccer camp in the mm-hmm. summer because it was at LMU. I, I played soccer camp at LMU. I also did soccer camp at Stanford. He was the one that always researched the camps and the coaches and stuff. And so, you know, as a kid, I was like, oh, he's so mean. But like looking back, he was so supportive. He just, he wanted me to be the best and I just wasn't going to be. And then my mom was just like, oh, honey, you're just great at everything you do. She's like Perfect. the yeah. best mom. Yeah. So they've always been supportive. I remember in college, I talked to my dad before one of the Harvard Brown games and he was like, oh, I'm in the airport. I have to go to Chicago for a continuing education course. He's a clinical psychologist. And while he was in the airport, he changed his mind and decided to fly up to Providence. And so surprised me as I was like on the starting line. So yeah, me and my parents have always been supportive, which is cool. Very cool. And so how to progress through college? Like, did you decide I'm going to be a volleyball player for life? Or how was that kind of how did you view it? No, you know, so sport, as many people know, is always evolving. And there just weren't a lot of opportunities for professional sports for women. And being 5'10 is tall, but it's not tall for a volleyball player. I started a bit late. And you know, sports was always something that I thought I would utilize to get into a good school to then graduate, get a good job. And then, you know, all that normal, like adult stuff. And what (laughs) wouldn't you, so when you went to Brown, what was your kind of plan, let's say adult life plan at that point? What did you think you wanted to do coming out of it? Yeah. So I, I basically majored in just like entrepreneurship and business. And so at the time, you know, I was selling Cutco, so I thought I was definitely thought I was Cutco for life, which I think. Oh, did you? Nice. Most, yeah, I think a lot of us, right, who sold Cutco and yeah. did it for a long time, thought so. I like the idea of sales and you know running my own business, so definitely entrepreneurial. Yeah, and so and then, and then thought maybe I'd get my you know graduate degree, which I ended up getting my executive MBA from Pepperdine. Nice. And how long were you at Cutco? How long did you do that? Man, I did Cutco from 2002 till 2008 or nine, something like that. Yeah. Six, seven years. Yeah, for a while. First off, I'm curious, how'd they recruit you? How'd that first intro come into them? For Cutco? I'm a mailer baby. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a letter in the mail. Same deal, Uh, yeah. I thought... I thought I was, because it said like, I remember like, you, you'll be selling housewares and sporting goods. So I thought it was like a, a recruiting company for like Sports Delay and Big Five. So I thought I'd be like in store selling stuff. I never, I was like, 
And then I was so confused when I went for my interview, but obviously it turned out great. I mean, I have friends for life from there. Yeah. Obviously you're one of them and you know, so skills yeah, for no. life. It's so fun to see. I mean, we talked about this before, but like, it's one of the more incredible sales training programs you can ever do as a college kid. And it, a lot of people shrug it off because of that first week in training with your family is some scam or some blah, blah, blah. Like, but if you dive in head first, like the amount you earn, like I have, I still, to this day, it's been what, 15 years since I worked at Cutco and I pull from it all the time. My business partner was from Cutco. Like it's mm-hmm. just, it's crazy. I still know the referral approach and I know the, the first appointment script, like that stuff yep. will never leave my brain. And by the way, you can use that in any other sales. Like sales yep. is what drives a lot, including our own business. It's a huge sales program. I have a 60 person sales team now that I had to build and train. And now we have obviously other people too, but it's like, so much yeah. of it is the same as selling Cutco. So much of it. We yeah. we actually, Tony talks about the Cutco rule of law and like the having, you know, the numbers in front of you and making sure we're projecting right and having that cascading waterfall and all that is how we run our company now. So it's just, the education's priceless and you can make some money. And so what drove you to leave after six, seven years? What, what came up? I think it's hard, you know, to... It can be very isolating. I was in a I was in a part of town that would have been great for me now, but as like a 22 year old, yeah. The the summer is so much fun, right? And in the fall, you're just like, where did everybody go? Yeah. And so it, you know, at 22, I don't think I was great at retaining people. I think I was really good at training them, but the retention piece wasn't there. And so it was just time to go do something else and live somewhere else. And like, I still know my rep number. People still order for me from time to time. And That's awesome. I talked to Jay Brad and all those guys. And yeah. so, yeah. And so what would you end up doing next? So I, <laughs> I did a lot. So I moved down to San Diego. Yeah. I sold hazardous waste disposal services. Wow. That's so, a yep. pivot. <laughs> yep. That I learned a lot there. They fired me. So shout out to the people who fired a future Olympian. (laughs) And then I sold some like online advertising for a while. And like the concept was really good. It just was like, you know, they didn't flush it out enough and they made it, they overcomplicated the concept. It was like right when constant contact was really popular and you could create like a microsite and a coupon and like websites. And it was all like, I did well, I sold a lot. Mm-hmm. But, and they had like this online directory. They just, the online directory was too convoluted. So like, if you were looking for something, you could look in like four different directories to find the one thing you're looking for. So it wasn't super intuitive. And then after that, I got talked into doing inside sales for a server warranty company. And the money was great. It just like, I just didn't want to sit at a desk all day and just calling and and saying the same thing over and over again. So that only lasted for like three months. And then I had made myself a promise to fully vet every opportunity that came to me because after the hazardous waste company, I was unemployed for like seven months. And like, I was one of those, like, I'm an Ivy League grad. I'm intelligent. I have sales experience. You will pay me lots of money. But by this time, like, you know, the housing market had crashed in the the middle of a recession, all that stuff. And so I couldn't find a job to save my life. And I turned down all these opportunities that I just at face value didn't seem like what I wanted to do. And so after that experience, I was like, you just need to pound the payment and any, any interview you get, you will go on. And so after I got this server warranty job and I told the guy, I was like, look, I'm the type of person that if I don't see value in this, there is nothing you can do to motivate me. 
There's no amount of money. If I'm not enjoying myself and this doesn't fit for me, I'll be gone in three months. He's like, okay. And so I went in for a a job interview at ADT Security. I'll never forget the the interviewer, still a good friend of mine, Tony Peluso, was like 6'2", like well-dressed. And I was like, wow, (laughs) okay, (laughs) this is more my style. Like you look like a salesman. Yeah. And so he sits me down, he's doing the interview, showing me like what you can make and all that. And I just stopped him. I said, look, I understand that this is a great opportunity for somebody, but I don't have any, if I was going to do outside sales commission only, I'd go back to selling Cutco because that's the easiest thing. One of the easiest things to sell. And I know the product, like I know nothing about security. I was yeah. like, but you know, I have some management experience. So if by chance there's ever any management positions open up, let me know. And so lo and behold, his boss was in town and his son had worked for Cutco nice. and was like, Hey, you know, my boss actually wants to talk to you because we have an opening in Orange County. And so long story short, I ended up only being at the server warranty place for three months, uh-huh. skipped the sales rep job and got a sales manager position in Orange County for ADT security in their small business nice. division. Yeah. Awesome. And yeah. what year was that? When did you join them? That was 2012. Okay. Yeah, 2012. Yeah. And so what happened over the next couple of years? How, how you just stuck it out or? Yeah. So I was doing well. I got really lucky the, cause there's two managers, there's two man, two sales managers for office and the one sales manager got fired and where they were having trouble finding someone else. So I was like, look, let me run the whole team myself as long as I can. So made enough money to buy a house, ran the team, crushed it got promoted, moved to Atlanta for a new job, was there for like two weeks, got a phone call and said the company has restructured. The job you just moved for does no longer exist, but we're going to send you to Denver if you want to go to Denver. And and at that point, I had started the program at Pepperdine. It was a part-time, so you only met every three weeks. So I was going to fly home from Atlanta every month. And I was like, well, at least the flight to Denver is shorter than the flight from Atlanta. So I was like, whatever, I don't care. My only regret is I had found this amazing little three bed, three bath condo that I wish I'd purchased because now I could probably sell it for four times the amount. (laughs) Shoulda, coulda, woulda. But yeah, so I, I moved to Denver and I connected with this woman who I had met because I'd been CrossFitting in Orange County that I met at a competition we became friends. We happened to live in the same neighborhood. And that's kind of how just I met all my friend group. And then one of the, those friends was the friend that said, Hey, Lauren, you should bobsled. So, yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask that, like, I mean, you know, to most people, especially that didn't grow up maybe in Colorado or, you know, snow areas, bobsledding doesn't seem like it's not the first sport you think of jumping into, especially as someone that, you know, you grew up playing soccer and volleyball and track. And I get the track relation. So how did that come up? Is it just like you're CrossFit, you're in shape, but you should try this. It's fun. I wasn't really in, in that great of shape. If, oh, okay. if you really, if you're really on, I mean, like I was in decent shape, but for me, like now I'm like thinking back, I was like, I wasn't in great shape. So my friend, Jillian Potter, it was August of 2014. She was training to make the first rugby sevens team for 2016. So for Rio, uh-huh. she came up to me one day and was like, Hey, how much do you back squat? And I was like, I don't know, like 375 is my max. Yeah. She, she walked away. And then she came back and she was like, how much do you deadlift? I was like, I don't know, 
425, 435 in that range. She's like, okay, cool. Walked away. And then I was like on her phone and came back. I was like, hey, can you sprint? And I was like, Jill, what's the deal? She's like, I think you should bobsled. Huh. <laughs> and at this point I was 30, right? Yeah. 30 years old. And I was like, are you crazy? I'm like eight years removed from any kind of real elite competition. I bought a house. I have a house that I'm renting out. I'm just finishing my MBA that I spent a lot of money on. And I'm like climbing this corporate ladder. I can't bobsled. I was like, bobsled's not a real sport. That's the 1990s Disney movie. That was like, you know, <laughs> love cool running. Yeah. Yeah. And so the reason I tried out is because of that promise I'd made to myself when I was unemployed, right? To fully yeah. vet every opportunity. And then I found out that the tryouts were being held at an Olympic training center that was like an hour away in Colorado Springs. And I was like, it said that if I paid some extra money, I could tour it and eat in the cafeteria. So I was like, sold. I'll go down there to quote unquote, do this tryout. But really I was just going down there to because I wanted to see what, how Olympians live. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it all started. And so what happened at that tryout? Or did so, you train for it? Did you like take it seriously and like I'm again? No. Okay. <laughs> no, the tryout was like two weeks later. No. I had to call my mom because I was going home before the tryout to like, because I needed sprint spikes and I hadn't sprint since I was like 16. Yeah. So I was like, mom, can you find my sprint spikes? She couldn't find those, but she found my long jump spikes that were kind of similar. So went to the tryout, was definitely the oldest person there and definitely the only person that didn't train for it. Like everybody else had trained for it. And it was cool because like, I don't know how into CrossFit you are, but or, or weightlifting, but Morgan King was there and we're mm -hmm. good friends now. She's a real Olympian, incredible person. So that's where we met. And she was like, just checking it out for skeleton. And then there were some other like pretty decent track athletes. And then I'm talking to this one woman and find out she's 17 years old. And I'm like, I am competing against children. This is going to be embarrassing. So for those of you who are wondering, like, what does a bobsled trout look like? So you do a 45 meter sprint. You do a two-handed shot toss. So you take like one of those metal shot put balls and heave it forward as far as you can, two hands. And then you do a standing broad jump and you do those three things. And then if you do well, they invite you to like a rookie camp. And by that point, I had actually left ADT and was working for TrueMaker for Lovis, for Mark yep. Lovis, who also Cutco. Man, Cutco's just yeah. everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, <laughs> and so I remember telling Mark, I was like, hey man, so... I'm going to try out for the bobsled team. And I just got invited to this like rookie camp. It's only going to be a week. I'm just going because it sounds like a cool like opportunity to see how Olympians live for a week. But that like, that's it. And you know, in true Mark fashion, he was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And like, we had like continued our conversation. And so, yeah. So I always say I tried as a joke and seven, almost eight years later, I guess the joke's on me. <laughs> and so how was that experience? I mean, I think it just like your own curiosity, I'm sure most people are curious what goes on in that training camp. So in that training camp, they just, it's like bobsled 101. So it's in the summer. So we're not actually sliding there. We have a wheeled bobsled track. Uh -huh. They actually just built an ice version, which is incredible uh -huh. and life-changing for future bobsledders for sure. So they just teach you how to push a sled because everybody generally starts out as a brakeman. So you get the sled going you hop in and then your head's basically down the rest of the ride until it's ready to pull the brake so just going over that we did some additional testing we did like a three rep max back squat we did a power clean and then i think we retested the 30 meter sprint and then it's just and then and they have you walk the track so you can kind of see what a bobsled track looks like in the summer mm -hmm. and then you know lake Placid is just like the cutest little town so you just hang out in the town and 
I met my best friend who was already an Olympic medalist at that time, Jamie Poser. And so she was just giving us a rundown of what a season would look like and what it means to make the national team and like the process of making an Olympic team. And there's just so much more that goes into Olympic sports. And you realize like, for me, I used to think that like, they just competed once every four years. Like obviously basketball and soccer has seasons, but I never thought that like, you know, bobsledders compete every year, skeleton athletes. I didn't even know what skeleton was or luge or anything like that. So it was a lot of learning very quickly. And you said that was what, 2014? 2014, yeah. And you went to the Olympics in 2018, right? Correct. So it was four-year process of training and I guess, trying to make the national team that kind of, so how was that? Like, yeah. was that kind of like as sort of seamless as it seemed to be to get to that point where it's like, you kind of tried it out, then it went to the next step, it just kept progressing or were there points where you're like, I don't know that this is going to work. Yeah. I mean, every day I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. I, I've been fortunate. I made my first national team. I've been on the national team since knock on wood, hopefully make another national team and hopefully go to another Olympics. But yeah, so you do a single push champs, then you do a doubles push champs, then you do team trials, and then they name the national team, and the national team goes on tour. So we do eight World Cups, and then usually a World Championships, which is the same format as the Olympics. So it's a two-day event, two runs a day. Yeah, and then it's, you know, wash, rinse, and repeat the next three years. And hopefully you're getting faster, stronger, and just, you know, better technique. And how obviously practice is a good part of it, but is it also like, do you have like workouts you never thought of when you were doing this? Like, is there training that you're just like, even though you've been an athlete your whole life, you're like, wow, this is a whole different level of training. Was that part of it? The level of training? Yes. The type of training? No. I mean, other than like pushing a sled on ice, (laughs) I mean, we train like Olympic sprinters and Olympic weightlifters because we have to be fast and strong and explosive. So, but I do train six days a week. Um, in some capacity and just the hours like it really is a full-time job like you know warm-up takes like an hour then you're training like your sprints for an hour and then you switch over to lifting so you another warm-up for like 30 minutes and then an hour to two hours of lifting and then in the cold tub and then getting treatment and then it's just at 37 everything takes longer everything yeah I can feel that already. (laughs) So with, with that beginning process, was it immediately a full-time job? Like I know the workload was, but did you stop working from 2014 and that was it or? So I was really fortunate. Mark was kind enough to allow me to work for part of that first season. Uh-huh. But with the time difference, because I was in Europe, you know, we had a call and he's like, it's, this isn't working. And and I was like, you're right. And, but he was really good to give me the bandwidth to try. And then after that first season, because I still had a very expensive car and a very expensive apartment that I was renting in Denver, because I figured like, I don't want to sell all my stuff before I know if this is going to work. So I got back, sold all my stuff. <laughs> Fun fact, when you lease a car, you cannot get out of the lease early. I learned yeah. that. So yeah. my dad, I know that now, obviously, but at you know, 30, it was my first lease. I just, you know, wanted a nice car. So my dad bought my bought me out of my lease. Luckily, his transmission had had gone on his car and then sold a bunch of my stuff on Craigslist, packed the rest of it up, put it in storage, and thought, okay, so I'll see you in a few years and that'll be that. And then Mark was really nice to you know, hire me on like a contract basis. They were ramping up an office in New York. So I moved to New York for three months, 
and helped ramp up that office and then took all the sales appointments that the kids in Manhattan didn't want to travel for. So like the Long Islands and New Jersey's. Yeah. And I had a bunch of credit card debt because, you know, when you make a lot of money, you're like, oh, I'll pay that off later. Yeah. And then when you go from making a lot of money to no money, you're like, I need to pay that off now. Yep. So, I did the exact same thing at Cutco, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, it's easy at Cutco because you get oh, yeah. a big commission check every week. You're like, oh, I'll pay it off next time. Yeah. So paid off all my credit card debt. And then after that didn't work really for the next probably five years would do like speaking engagements here. Or there had a couple sponsors here and there just kind of, <laughs> I had a beef jerky sponsor, shout out to chef's cut beef jerky. They gave me unlimited amounts of jerky. And I remember coming back after that first summer after my first season and with this all this free beef jerky and the coaches were like you're different I was like what do you mean he's like you haven't really done anything in this sport and you already have people giving you free stuff and I was like well I have a sales background yeah and so it's incredible you know I'm I'm an Olympian with an Ivy League degree and a executive MBA and it like the you would never think that those three things would work together but you know, that education and that sales background are the reason I've been able to excel because, you know, I've launched a speaking career and a consulting business. And now I do content creation and like, I actually went viral on TikTok. And so still charting my own path. And that's just like, one, I said, like I said, I climbed out of my career in eight months. So I've always kind of just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. But two, like have always just been very entrepreneurial and just wanted to find ways to excel in, you know, paths that aren't the normal paths. Cause like the corporate thing was not for me. Like everything was beige. The walls were beige. (laughs) All the people were beige. And I'm, I'm not even talking about skin color. I'm talking about like personalities and nothing against beige humans. It's just, I need change and movement and excitement and I need challenge. And like, that's what really attracted me to bobsled. Like after my first bobsled ride, I thought I was going to die and like also like float off the the planet all at once. And like that feeling is that same feeling you get when you go into a sales call and you don't know if someone's going to buy big or not. And then when you, you like ask for the order and that pause and they're like, yeah, I'll take that $3,000 set of knives off of you. And you're like, hell yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I just need that in my life. So no, I get that. And so when did that it hit that you're like, you went from again, looking at yourself as you're competing with a bunch of children. Okay, you made it to practice camp. Okay, you're making it on the national team. At what point were you like, wow, I'm actually very good at this? I still struggle with that. Okay. <laughs> I know you got the you showed it earlier. You got the medal sitting right yeah. there. Subjective evidence that you're pretty decent. <laughs> well, it's funny because when I started, I was so bad, like definitely had, had the raw, like abilities, right? Strong, fast, hardworking, but it was going to, it, it took so much work that most of the things that I do in my life, I don't want to work that hard. And I'd gotten to a point in my life where I felt like I was better on paper than I was in real life. And so that's what this journey really was. It, I don't think it was ever about the Olympics. I just wanted to prove to myself that I was the person that everybody else thought I was. Mm-hmm. And I just said, you know, win, lose, or draw, you're going to do this, this whole quad, right, whole four years in 2018. And I just thought if, 
I could be an alternate and get some cool swag, that would be enough. And probably after like my second season, I was like, this isn't enough. I'm going to go to the Olympics and I'm going to win a medal. And that was that. So it was just, and then at that, did you at that point step it up another notch? Cause you had a couple of years till the Olympics. Did you actually like commit more or were you already fully committed? You just had the mindset. I was, I was already fully committed because like bobsled's not a sport that you can do without fully committing or else you're going to get injured, you know, because like our sleds are 365 pounds. We're going anywhere from 75 to 95 miles an hour. You've got to be fit. You've got to be aware. You've got to know what you're doing. And I was competing with Olympians and Olympic medalists, you know, like in 2014, both Jamie Grubel Poser and Alana Myers Taylor, who I ended up racing with at the Olympics in 2018, had won medals. So it wasn't like I could screw around. It was like, hey, you may not know what you're doing, but you are sliding with one of the best pilots in the world. So get your crap together and be a professional. So, and I'm so fortunate to have had that introduction. You know, Alana will be forever family to me. It's, you know, she was the one that told Jill about bobsled. So she's the reason I'm here. She's the person I took my first bobsled ride with Jamie is literally like a sister to me. You know, she lives in Germany now with her husband, who is also an Olympic bobsledder. And so, you know, I just, I didn't have the luxury of just having fun. It was like, Hey, you may not know what you're doing, but you're going to need to fake it because we need to win medals. And I'm so grateful for that kind of introduction to the sport. It had to be something I took seriously from the, from the jump off. So. And I'm curious when you started, when you, you know, were racing with them, did you immediately go, oh, like I'm actually, I, I have a lot to learn, but I have, the, I think I can make it to this level. Or were you like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to hang out with this group. I was like, I just feel like an imposter and <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. And I was like, I just hope I just get another race, another chance, another season. Cause I just, you know, I went into the first season so unprepared. Like yeah. I went from like, doing a combine to try out to like, okay, you're in Europe now and you're yeah. racing against the rest of the world. By the way, there's an Olympic champion. She's an Olympic champion. He's, and I'm like, oh, this freaking medalist was running around. <laughs> so it was really like after that first season, I was like, okay, it's, it's time to like really figure this out and like hone my craft and take this seriously. So started yeah. taking it seriously pretty much from the beginning, but like really thought I could, you know, go to the Olympics probably after my second season. Got it. And so when you qualified, did, was it expected? You're like, I was, you were pretty confident with the path or was it kind of a shock, like still exciting that you got there? there one of my teammates is, said this quote, his name, he's a skeleton Olympian. He said, you'll never forget the moment they told you you were going to be an Olympian. Cause you know, there's so many numbers that are considered. So the pilots qualify based off of their world ranking and then a selection committee puts the brakeman in the sleds and basically decides who the best combos are. And the U S women's team is so competitive. I've never competed against this caliber of athlete in my life. I think you're you're competing against literally the best in the world. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I mean, just the most elite women I've ever seen. And the women's bobsled team, the U S women's bobsled team specifically has won a medal every Olympics since the introduction of women's bobsled into the Olympics in 2002. So we have a very long and important legacy. And, you know, 
So no, I mean, there were moments where I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to the Olympics. And then there were other moments where I was like, nope, just screwed it up. I'm out. I should just pack it up and go home. A lot of nights crying, a lot of sleepless nights. I used to have nightmares that like I would show up to a race and like the start ramp would be completely covered in snow and they'd be like, okay, go push a start record. (laughs) (laughs) You're like through snow. They're like, yeah, if you're good enough, you should be able to figure it out. And so I'll ne- hopefully I'll never forget the moment they told me I was going to be an Olympian. It was in St. Moritz, Switzerland. It was 1130 PM at night, you know, European time. And it was in this room of like six people in this like old European hotel in this like old library. And they're just, yeah, they were just like, you're going to the Olympics and you're going to push Alana in the Olympics. And that was just I slid under the table and like didn't move for a good 30 seconds and just like until this day like yeah I have this medal sitting here but like you know you look at it and like you touch it but like it's just I don't know I don't know if it'll ever feel real yeah you know no, it's the meaning behind it is insane like it's it's mm-hmm. amazing and so yeah. so you keep training you go how was it going to the olympics going to the olympic village showing up with all your different the different athletes from the country like did you feel more patriotic like have you always been like a huge american pride person or did it feel more than like i'm curious about that yeah, part. I, th- I think as an athlete you know you grow up listening to the national anthem so you yeah. always have like representing your country i've always loved the olympics you know, my mom broke her leg watching Michelle Kwan, like running down the stairs to see Michelle Kwan skate. <laughs> so, and, you know, and I like love gymnastics and have watched the Olympics my entire life. And, you know, I used to march around the living room to the Olympic fanfare because my mom had it on record player. But you get to the, you get to the Olympics and you see everybody with their different, like, garb on from their countries and it's just it's so fun to see you know cultural representation in clothing and just food and excited everybody's excited it's like the coolest club you could at like best yeah. secret society that you could ever be a part of and it's it's special because we all know how much freaking work it took to get there like yeah. you bleed you cry you break things, you get, you know, injections, like it's just, it takes all of you. And so the recognition of that, I think in each other is so special. And, you know, the saying is once an Olympian, always an Olympian, never former, never past. Like you never call an Olympian a former Olympian or ex-Olympian or past because like, it's something that you carry with you forever. You get a ring, every US Olympian, and I think other countries do it too, gets an Olympic ring for every Olympics that you go to. And it in Team USA does such a good job of making you feel special. So it's, I I had the most fun, but I also told myself because you can let the goal of winning a medal determine how much fun you have, or you can just decide to have fun whether you win a medal or not. Because my feeling is whether you win a medal or not, the journey and the work it, it took to get there is exactly the same. Yep. Right? Everybody does their best, and so I really feel like we need to celebrate the journey more than the end result because that journey is how you change the world. Yeah. The medal's not going to change the world. You change the world through your experiences, your failures, your successes, the people you meet along the way. And that to me is what success is. Success is taking your life experiences and then creating something that, you know, betters society. 
Yeah, totally fair. And so I am curious. So you go out there and did it feel like you were home? Like you're all of a sudden surrounded by all these people that have been going through the same thing. And you had that with your teammates, but now you've got, I don't know how many people are on the U.S. Olympic team, but there's a lot. And Mm -hmm. did you just feel like a, a little bit of like, you all know, like we all understand each other. Like we all know what we've gone through, that kind of thing. Definitely that. But then there's also some celebrities, right? Like I yeah. met Sean White and took a picture of Sean White. Yes, I met yeah. Lindsey Vaughn, took a picture. Of, you know, Adam Rapon was not the celebrity he is now, but we were, we've always been friends. So it's always fun to take photos in your Olympic year. And like when opening ceremonies happens, we're sitting back there for a good like hour or so. And it's all the countries and it's like everybody's like dressed to the Olympic nines, right? Like you got your opening ceremonies gear on and you know, Ralph Lauren always does it big. Like we had the dumb and dumber gloves that people were like all excited <laughs> about. Right. Yeah. And like people trying to buy it off of you because our stuff is dope. Like the, yeah. the Team USA stuff is like, there's no stuff like Team USA stuff. Come at me. And that's fine. That's awesome. Though I think summer gets cooler stuff. Like they get a blazer. Like I could really that's use nice. an Olympic team blazer. Like, can you is imagine like- showing up to a business meeting with a U.S. Olympic team blazer? Yeah, like, that's going to hold out for the rest of your life. That's a good one. Right? I need yeah, to get Dumb and dumber gloves, you know, I guess a trip to Aspen, they'd be fun, but. <laughs> yeah, not not super useful, but yeah. So oh, cool. it is an experience that is impossible to fully describe, you know, in words. And so yeah. did you go into your races thinking you were going to podium? Like, were you pretty confident? Yeah. You did? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. when it happened, was it, I, I got to imagine it's still surreal. Even if you had that expectation, you were still like, but we really just did this. It's more surreal. Like you almost feel numb. Yeah. Like I felt, I was like, I did it because I was never the person who I'm like all over the place. Right. And I, I was never the person that like would see something through to completion. I would just be like, Oh, that's I'm bored with this. And I'm going to go do this now. Yeah. And that was really the first time I saw, like I made a goal, saw something through to completion and it, and I did it with intent, you know, like even volleyball in college, my main goal was to, you know, get a job after yeah. college, get a good job because I went to a good college. So I played sports again, took a college. This was just to just see if I could do it. Like, yeah. I just wanted to, to do the damn thing and see if it was possible. And it was. I remember watching on social media too. It was just like, oh, Lauren's doing bobsled. Holy shit. And I watched the race. It was like, did that just happen? Because we, I knew you again at Cutco. And it was like, mm-hmm. I didn't have the cross. I knew you had worked out. You had posted some CrossFit videos, but it was like, yeah, you yeah. Know, you're in good shape. And then it was like, you're at the Olympics. Like, and <laughs> <laughs> it was, I know. It was awesome to witness it. And it's crazy. No, it's all. And so I'm curious, how quickly did you go? All right, now to 2022. Like, how quickly did you go? I got to start preparing for four years from now man, the Olympic drug is strong. So (laughs) literally we're standing there like on the, on the fence with like an American flag behind us chanting USA with all our family and friends. It's like, I have the best support system in the entire world. I don't know how I got so lucky to have these human beings that like care about me so deeply. Obviously my mom and dad came, my brother didn't come though, but he has like two kids and they were young at the time. And so in school and all that stuff. But like I had 17 people total come to Korea. Some of them only JP came, came. Anthony came. Yeah. Love Anthony. How'd you like Korea? So it's funny. People ask me all the time. I didn't get to see much of Korea. 
the Fair part enough. of it, the parts of it that I saw, I love, but like, you're yeah. very much in a bubble. Like, yeah. you know, we're bust from place to place to place. Like there's a bus to the team USA house and a bus to the track. There was one day where I tried to go out in the just general population to go buy some stuff. Cause I was stupid and didn't get it while I was on the today show. Cause there's like two plazas where you can buy stuff mm-hmm. and it was packed. Yeah. So people everywhere. But I, I will say this, Korea is just one of the friendliest countries yeah. you could ask to be in. The people there were so excited to host the Olympics. My my parents had nothing but amazing things to say about the culture and the food. Like I saw some temples and stuff yeah. like that, but they really got to explore Seoul. And so I, I just, I'm, I feel fortunate that, you know, it was in a place where my family felt welcomed and taken care of and celebrated. So that was really special. No, it's a great spot. Seoul was awesome. And so, as you said, the Olympic drug is real. Like how quickly was it that you're like, I'm in for next year? Was it the moment you got your, you, yeah. you're like, all right, I'm still going to do this. It was like, I, it just, I was like, how it can't be over. Yeah. It can't like, I, this can't be the end of it. So it was literally like we're standing and that's where I was going with the story. Yeah. We're standing with the flag and we're chanting USA, USA. And then all of a sudden I start going four more years, four more. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what did I just say? And that's, yeah. And like this go around has been very different. I'm older. I have other interests. You know, I'm in the process of buying a house. Now I have to buy a car. I'm working full time. And so I'm in, I'm like, I have like just little injuries that I'm going to have to get repaired when I'm done just from, you know, 30 years of sport, essentially. And it's definitely harder in different ways, but easier in other ways. And so I'm just so fortunate for the whole experience, because I always say it's it's turned me into a whole person. I've grown so much in the last eight years that like, I know who I am from this experience. Like it really rounded out like I know who I am. I know what I'm meant to do. And I know what I don't want to do. And, uh, you know, that's really cool. That's awesome. Well, I got two more questions for you. One is what's next? Obviously 2022, but what what do you think is the future for you? Fingers crossed for 2022. I still have to make the team. Bobsled's one of those crazy sports where I have to try out for the team every year. So got it. for all you listening, imagine having to interview for your job every year. It makes makes it a little different. I was gonna say it's kind of a diabolical, but not the worst idea for CEOs. Yeah. Right. For real though. Yeah for real. So I do a lot of public speaking. I really enjoy corporate speaking, especially for sales teams, because there's so many, you know, easy connections between elite level athletics and business and sales. And so I love speaking to different corporations. It's been fun to do it virtually. I think it's almost a little more intimate because people feel more comfortable asking questions and yeah you know, do a and a but then I'm also working for an incredible organization called Parity. Our mission is to help close the pay gap in professional sports sponsorship. Oh. So not, yeah. So not so fun fact, there's about a $66 billion spend annually globally in sports sponsorship and women capture like 0.4% of that. Uh, I don't and know if so, you feel like gear I'm wearing or familiar with Angel City. I know, I see that yeah. Angel City stuff. Heck yeah, all about- we invested in them and got tickets. So big advocates for that. The founders are friends. So that's awesome. We'll have to go to a game then. 100%. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So yeah, that's my mission and my passion and how it 
came to be was like, I got a text message from a friend that was like, Hey, do you want to do this paid post for this company? And then had a conversation with the co-founders and it grew into so much more. But the reason I love what I'm doing is I run into too many athletes that put their worth behind their medals, medal or no medal, the training, the grit, the adversity that athletes overcome is so special and should be celebrated. And so my mission is to help tell more of those stories to inspire and have people aspire to. So that's kind of what I'm doing. Well, last question and kind of on that note for those people that are aspiring for greatness, whatever it might be, whether it's athleticism, whether it's business, whether it's whatever their calling is, what's one piece of advice you give them that you either wish you heard or you did hear that's not like a cliche, like work hard, but like something that you think is would be really helpful again, one way or another. Yeah, I think that one, when you stop running away from failure, that is where you can begin to truly succeed. And when I say that, it was when I would fail, I would move on to something else because it hurt my ego, mm-hmm. right? And But the way I started to see it is I'd rather fail leading up to the Olympics than fail at the Olympics. So do you want to deal with little failures along the way? and have an incredible experience and meet your end goal? Or do you want to get it perfectly every time and then fall apart at the end? So I I always feel like if you're not failing a little bit, then you're maybe not taking enough risk or trying hard enough. Couldn't agree more. Well, Lauren, this has been awesome. Obviously, we'll be rooting for you. And thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I love what you're doing. So best of luck to you. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.